An Old Testament reading from Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought her into contempt, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, later time he was made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Continuing with verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Casey Diaz was a shot caller. They're the power brokers in prison gangs. Shot callers literally call the shots. They determine who gets hurt, who gets killed, who gets to go and live. Casey had murdered plenty of rivals. He had been sentenced to nearly 13 years for second-degree murder, along with 52 counts of armed robbery, but he made sure they could never nail him for the first-degree murders, of which there were many. One of Casey's responsibilities within the prison gang was to control the distribution of shanks among his fellow inmates. Shanks are those crude, homemade knives, sharpened bit of a file, something made out of a toothbrush. He kept 13 shanks under his mattress, and whenever a riot went off, as the shot caller, he made sure the right people got the shanks and knew who they needed to take down. People got stabbed all the time. All it took was a wrong look at the wrong person, a little bit of disrespect, and you might be done for. He made sure of it. It was a place of incredible darkness within this gang structure, within the prison. Life there was cheap. And when he was transferred to New Folsom State Prison, as a result of his role, he was put in solitary confinement. He'd be cooped up inside an 8 by 10 windowless box with all his meals slipped in through a slot in the steel door. Social interactions were almost exclusively non-existent. Without a window, without a clock, without a wristwatch to consult, he had no idea whether it was daytime or nighttime. There was nothing to do, no television, no radio, no books. Only meals broke the monotony. He'd been told that if you're strong-willed, in solitary confinement, you might be able to get by, but if you aren't strong-willed, it will absolutely break you. It's a place of incredible darkness. Times, at times he wondered, even as a murderer, if he'd be able to keep his sanity. His entire life had been darkness, violence, and abuse, and he was caged in a lonely and dark box, a dark heart 
with a dark life in a dark place surrounded by darkness. In many ways, friends, that is a picture of this world in which we live and all of its fallenness. It's a frequent biblical image of darkness. The people that walk in darkness. Yet in the Gospels we read about John the Baptist. He's the central figure of the season of Advent. John the Baptist who points us in the midst of the darkness to a light that is to come. The passage we're going to look at is Luke chapter 1. In context, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, has been kept silent miraculously throughout the pregnancy because he had questioned God in the matter. His wife gives birth. They ask her what his name is. She says his name's John. All of the the family members are like, you can't name him John. God had told her, call him John. You can't call this baby John. You don't have any Johns in your family. People are going to think you've been messing around. You know, you can't do this. And, and, and she insists on John, so then they turn to, to Zechariah, the dad. Like, okay, we know you can't speak. You're mute. Is there anything you can do to veto your wife's decision here? Or else you're going to get stuck with a John. And for the first time in months, he speaks. God opens his mouth. He says, his name is John. And then he rejoices. He rejoices in song. Beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Let's read the word of the Lord here. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. A horn was a symbol of power. He has raised up powerful salvation for us in the house of his servant David, As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Then he turns to John the Baptist, this little newborn baby, and he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. And in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. This is God's gospel. What do we learn? Well, one thing we learn here is that as a church, the church broadly, we are a beachhead behind enemy lines. We've carved out this space in enemy territory. The prophecy here says that we're still living in a land of darkness. We're still in the land of the shadow of death. And yet Jesus, by instituting the church through the one that John speaks of, through Jesus, uh, God has created a realm in which his saving power has already broken in to this realm of darkness and of sin and of death. And that means that, that we're a beachhead and, and surrounded by enemies on every side. What does it mean to be a beachhead? 
if you look at the beaches of Normandy on June 6th of 1944, you will see the largest seaborne landing known in human history. More than 150,000 U.S. troops were committed to the initial invasion of Nazi-occupied Europe. They employed 7,000 vessels, 4,000 landing craft, and 12,000 airplanes. Within two weeks, British and Americans had deployed an additional 630,000 men, almost a million total, 90,000 vehicles, and 200,000 tons of supplies. 10,000 tons of bombs were dropped on German defenses, and word was given to the French resistance to sabotage key bridges, rail lines, telephone exchanges, and electric substations. Despite massive superiority on the part of the Allies, hours of heavy bombardment against beach defenses and warships' guns, the Germans, their line stayed intact as thousands of young men in landing craft motioned toward the shore. Nothing stood between those men and the cliffs and the Nazi guns except air. There were no defenses. There was no protection. And, and, and at beaches named Omaha and Gold and Sword and Juno and Utah, the troops' only chance was to run, swim, and crawl up the beach to the seawalls where they could reassemble for assaults on enemy gun positions. In the first hours, just at Omaha, more than 2,400 young men died. Over the next few weeks, as the battle progressed inland, the Allies would eventually lose 45,000 men to death, and another 100,000 were wounded or missing. But through their sacrifice, what they carved out in Nazi-occupied Europe, in the middle of enemy territory, is they carved out, at great cost, a beachhead. The Nazis at this point still controlled the entire map of Europe, from Moscow to uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, there was one small spot on the Atlantic seaboard of France that was free. This tiny little dot on a map that was not, you know, Nazi red, but Allied blue. This tiny sliver of land that was free Europe in its totality. This was, this tiny beachhead was Europe delivered from Nazi rule. A Europe where concentration camps could claim no more victims. A Europe where Nazi guards could no longer beat you or execute you or kidnap your sons and send them to forced labor in Germany. A Europe that was not occupied by the Nazis. It was a beachhead in enemy territory. And though all of Europe was still shrouded in darkness, on this one beachhead there was freedom from Nazi oppression. The entire war still had to be fought. They would have to fight inch by inch and mile by mile all the way to Berlin. But that beachhead had been secured. And that meant that everyone in Europe knew what was coming. Because all of Europe was shrouded in darkness. But the fact that they landed and took this beachhead meant that darkness would not be able to overcome the light. Even if the light was surrounded by so much darkness on every side. One historian said it this way. He said, it was as if it was preordained at that moment. The outcome of the war was absolutely clear. The Nazi menace would be rolled back destroyed, the darkness would be wiped out, and light would come, fascism would be conquered, and freedom would again come to Europe. That's, friends, where the church is on planet Earth today. That's the message of Advent. The church 
is Christ's beachhead in a world that is still shrouded in darkness, a world that still lives in the shadow of death. And D-Day, understand, was a long way from V-Day, Victory Day. Victory Day would come in the spring of 1945. Yes, at that point we had carved out this space in enemy-occupied land, but... Friends, if you're a Christian and you're in enemy-occupied land, even on your beachhead, it may mean that you find bullets wheezing over your head. It may mean you're crawling over the injured bodies of your fellow infantrymen. You might feel like you're a long, long way from home. You may be facing snipers at every rooftop. You may be sloshing about in soggy boots. You might be suffering tremendously for walking faithfully with Christ right now. And yet there is a beachhead. The people that, walk, that, that, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And on those who dwell in endless gloom, a light has shone. And this means our king's saving rule is here the light in the darkness, where before there was only darkness. Every year, on or about December 21st, I send a text message to a friend of mine. Why would it be December 21st? What is December 21st? The winter solstice. It's the darkest day of the year. And those of you who know me well know that I don't do darkness. I get seasonal affective disorder, I get depressed, I get grumpy, I get irritable, it's harder to get out of bed in the morning, taking lots of vitamin D, you know, if the sun does come out, I cancel all appointments and run outside until it goes away, because it's only going to be there for five minutes. Um, But every year on December 21st, I text a friend of mine, tomorrow is going to be seven seconds longer every single day going forward is going to be longer than the previous day. The darkness has had its day. It is being rolled back. The forces of light are advancing upon the northern hemisphere and there is nothing the darkness can do to stop it. Spring is on its way and summer's beyond that. And friends, that is the language the Bible uses of where we are right now in this moment. We have taken our beachhead. The light has shone in the darkness. The darkness has not understood it. The darkness is still all around us. But the darkness, though it can seem overwhelming, the light has come. And it tells us the future is better. On those beaches on D-Day, it was awful. Pressing on inland toward French villages with all the losses so much suffering. You might be questioning the wisdom of pressing onward. You might also watch, though, as a teary-eyed little girl rushes up and hugs a soldier's leg and won't let him go. As children come up to give you bouquets of flowers because they have just experienced the joy of salvation. Elderly women who have sat under the darkness of Nazi oppression for years being beaten down and abused and starved, rushing up and thrusting bottles of French wine into soldiers' arms, into your arms, because they have just experienced the joy of salvation. A light has shone in the darkness. World War I veterans weeping as the French flag again is raised over the local Hotel de Ville. The crowds of small children pointing you, pointing tanks in the direction of Paris, knowing that liberation is coming because a light has shone and a beachhead has been taken. 
the joy of people who walked in darkness, who have experienced a glimmer of light in the joy of salvation. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And all the while, you're still in a country under occupation by evil forces that have no legitimate right to be there. That's the church as a beachhead in enemy territory. And that puts us as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, that puts you in the tension of living between the already and the not yet. See, the kingdom of God has already been inaugurated, but the Bible also says it's not yet been inaugurated in its fullness. We see the kingdom of God is already inaugurated. It's already here. Verse 68, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He's talking about Christ's first coming there and, and what John is, is, is bringing about. What, what's he's, he's going before that. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is now at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. In Luke 12, he says, don't be afraid, little flock. Because your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The kingdom of God. The inbreaking of God's rule through Jesus. Already here. Already in practice. Already breaking in. Christ says it. It's what's prophesied here. To say that the kingdom of God is, is a present reality. Is to speak to all the many ways that Jesus is, is already present and evident among us. If you have him, for example, your sins are already forgiven. You've already been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He's already seen you adopted into the family of the Father as children of the Father and siblings of Jesus. You have already become an heir with a future inheritance. You've already been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've already been engrafted into the church. You already have every spiritual blessing in Christ, the Bible says. You already have access to the Father through prayer. You already have His promise to receive you and hear you and answer you in accordance with His purpose. You already have Jesus advocating on your behalf at the right hand of the Father right now. You already have His Spirit in you interceding with words you can't understand your father in heaven sisters and brothers he's already smiling upon you he's already delighting in you he's already singing over you Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister you've already been mystically united to Jesus Christ and become a partaker of the divine nature through his promises you've already been saved by grace through faith in Christ these are all present tense realities. You already have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You already have His enablement to trust and obey the Lord. You already have spiritual family who are responsible to help you walk with God. You already have the promise of God upon your covenant children. These are all present manifestations of the kingdom of God right now, already here. God is actually already changing people. He's teaching us to believe the gospel practically and therefore trust him and do what he says instead of running to our other saviors that we would have run to before. He's already making love to break out upon the earth in the midst of the darkness and the suffering, in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. He is causing love to abound. You as his church are the vanguard of the kingdom of God. The vanguard is that triangle of advanced troops piercing into the darkness to split the darkness and open up a space for a larger army to come. You are his church. You are his vanguard. 
His kingdom of God, it's already inaugurated, but it's not yet inaugurated in its fullness. The kingdom of God has come. It's not yet been consummated. The Bible uses the language of engagement. When we as the church are called the bride of Christ, we're the bride in the sense that we're betrothed. We're engaged. But the wedding supper has not yet come. Uh, some of you hated being engaged. It will be a difficult Christian life for you. Um, dating, eh, engagement, ugh, marriage, eh, you know, it, it varies. Different people have different stories. But engagement, that's a, that's a tense, awkward place of already, but not yet. You want to be one place. You're starting to think you're there, but you're not there yet. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tension. Uh, we're not yet in the fullness of the kingdom. Notice how the prophecy says we still have enemies. Salvation is not yet here in its fullness. John is a harbinger of what's to come. Verse 74, he's going to rescue us, the Lord, from the hand of our enemies, but we still got enemies. Jesus speaks of the kingdom as a future reality, something to come. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, we're praying for his return. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that at his return, he says, come you who are blessed of my Father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's not yet here. The apostles say similar things. Peter in 2 Peter 1 says, Therefore, my brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the coming kingdom of Christ. Friends, this means we're still in a world that is filled with darkness. While you've been spiritually brought from death to life through the new birth of the Holy Spirit, our bodies are still dying, every one of us. Every one of us is still going to go through death. Uh, we're, we're still going to, you know, uh, 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 we're still going to, to, to have to go to the grave unless Christ returns sooner than in our lifetime. Uh, we have new spiritual resources and motivation to obey God, but we still sin 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're all still constantly having to ask God to forgive us. We're all still constantly having to ask each other to forgive us. And if this isn't your experience, something is wrong. Because the Christian's experience is that we're sinners. We're still sinners. We're not yet healed. We're not yet delivered. We're not yet whole. We're not yet complete. We've been given hope and joy in Christ, but there's still a very good chance that you're going to struggle with depression in this life. We have a new freedom to obey God, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to have to face and deal with an addiction. You have a newfound faith in Jesus, but that doesn't mean that doubts will not plague you at times through your life. So much of our salvation still lies in the future. It's only the future in, in which things will be made perfect and will be made like Jesus. It's only in the future that our bodies will be raised from death and transformed to glory. It's only in the future that we're going to see God and live. It's only in the future that the Bible says we will be free from sin and sickness and disease and death itself. We're not there yet. It's only in the future that the kingdom and glory of God will flood the nations as the waters cover the earth. It's only in the future that Jesus will be honored and worshipped by all of humanity. It is only in the future that the kings of the earth and the nations of the earth will bring their glory and splendor into the city of God and present them to him as tribute. It is only in the future that animals and the created world will be restored and redeemed like St. Paul says in Romans 8 when he speaks of their coming liberation from the bondage to decay. It is only in the future that we'll truly be free. We're not there yet. It's, 
It's only in the future that God's shalom or his peace will come. Only in the future will the earth, you know, will the kings of the earth beat their swords into plowshares. Only in the future will nation no longer take up arms against nation. We're not there yet. It's only in the future that true justice will fill all the earth. Only in the future that universal flourishing will make all nations come alive to God and alive to one another. So much of the kingdom of God awaits Christ's return in the future. It's a kingdom that's already here, but it's a kingdom that's not yet here in its fullness. It's like St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that Jesus must reign here and now until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last one to be defeated will be death. The kingdom of God's here. It's not yet consummated and that leaves us a beachhead in enemy territory waiting for the Lord to come. Fleming Rutledge is a theologian and in her book, very good book on Advent, she writes this. She says, Advent is about delayed gratification. Advent teaches us to wait. Advent shows us how to be empty, living in the anticipation of the promise one day to be fulfilled. Advent teaches us to recognize this grace, to turn aside from our own devices and to wait in the darkness with patience for the promised time of fulfillment. The darkness has been overcome and it will be overcome. And that leaves us living in the tension between the already and the not yet. It's like, any of you like the smell of french fries? I used to live in an apartment building and the building next door had a restaurant in it with a big greasy french fry fryer that blew all of its exhaust into the alley between my building and their building. You could open your windows and smell french fries any time of any day. Uh, There's something about the smell of french fries when y'all are going to go eat carbs. I know it. Uh, You smell french fries, you can smell the oil and the potato and the crispy bits of the potato and pulling them out of the fryer and glistening and salt on them, so salty and crunchy. And when you smell french fries, you can almost taste french fries. French fries are already a present reality to you because you're thinking about them, you're feeling about them. It's the only thing that can totally kill a keto diet is the smell of french fries because they're real. And yet what that smell of french fries is a harbinger of is something's coming. What's coming? Real french fries. And that's kind of where we are right now. We can smell it. We can see it. We know it's coming, but it's not yet here in its fullness. It's seeing God do amazing things in people and then finding out that the person who introduced you to Christ has walked away from their faith. It's the wheat and the tares growing up together, already here, not yet here. Without that tension, we lose our our spiritual bearing. You see, there is a type of Christianity that is all about the kingdom being already here. And within certain religious spaces, you see an over-realized eschatology, uh, a type of Christianity that's all about the miracles and the healings and the prosperity and the success and the worldly blessings and the holiness and healing in this life. Stories of people who have changed completely and are no longer even tempted. Stories of victory and overcoming. It grabs power. It considers it, it's a right. Uh, 
there are all sorts of flavors of this kind of power Christianity that, ha- that, that overemphasizes the already to the neglect of the not yet. Um, you know, it overstates what we're to expect while still in this present darkness of the world in which we live. It's a kind of religion that leaves you always having to project an incredible optimism about what God is doing in your life, and yet it leaves very little space for grieving the losses of this life. Very little space for discussing the disappointments of life in a world that's still shrouded with darkness and only a a tiny bridgehead of light breaking in. It leaves little room for the cancer patient to be honest about the severity of her diagnosis. It leaves little room for those of us with ongoing fallen conditions who aren't going to go, that that aren't going away in this life, to actually be honest about it. It's a kind of religion that beats us down and acts like we're not believing God enough. We're not repenting deeply enough. If we repented deeply enough and named it and claimed it, our healing would happen. And the Bible doesn't say any of that. God doesn't promise freedom from temptation in this life. Quite the contrary. God does not promise that he will always heal you of your diseases. Quite the contrary. I googled it. The death rate for believing Christians is still 100%. He doesn't say you're not going to suffer in this life. Jesus promises you, you will suffer in this life. And for those who have been raised in churches and ministries with this over-realized, already here eschatology, this over-inflated optimism about what God is going to do in this life, the, the children raised in those houses see the lies. They see the fraud. They see behind the mask. All this projection of how godly and naming and claiming and growing and, and faithful I am, believing God. And then they go home and they see mom's still an alcoholic. They see dad is still a bitter and angry man. They see the reality behind the false front of faith-filled optimism. And so they lose their faith because they never had it, because they couldn't get it from their parents, because their parents were living a lie they were told to live. The light, friends, has broken in, but the dawn has not yet arrived. We still have this tension of living in the already and the not yet. And yet for many in in this spiritual tradition, we err on the opposite side. We can gladly admit that the darkness is there. Our sense of total depravity tells us not to experience too many blessings in this life. And we can become cynical. We can become jaded with a functional disbelief in God. We can allow an unbelieving cynicism into our hearts. We may even pride ourselves on our cynicism because cynicism feels so authentic. And yet it leaves no room for an actual relationship with God because you're not going to trust God for anything because you don't believe he's going to care enough to hear you and to answer you. And so it leaves us feeling numb, always observing, always critiquing as if we were the judge but never really engaging with God, not really loving God, not really asking and hoping for him to show up and change things. Cynicism can leave us passive and distant. Paul Miller says that a praying life is the very opposite of that. It engages evil. It doesn't take no for an answer. The psalmist was in God's face, hoping, dreaming, asking, arguing with God. Prayer is feisty. You know, in our unbelief, overemphasizing the not-yetness of the kingdom, we, we end up not believing that God can intervene. We don't really believe he's going to change someone's heart. We don't really believe that he'll help us break cycles that are destroying the people around us who we should be loving instead of using 
we can be blind to the spiritual reality that surrounds us. And you'll know this is you because you will have no prayer life whatsoever because you're not actually trusting God. You're not engaging Him. You're not channeling your inner anxiety to Him. You know, the way it looks like for me, this week, several big things happened this week that I just thought were absolutely awful and, and could really hurt some people. And, and it got me praying because I know God will hear me. And I know he will answer according to his purpose, not mine. So I pray, I take all that anxiety about what might happen, and I say, God, I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm really worried about this person. I'm really concerned about this situation, Lord. You can intervene. You can change the heart, Lord. You can change what they say. You can change how they say it. You can humble them. You, You can open their heart to hear other perspectives. You can raise up other sisters and brothers to rebuke them and call them to the carpet, Lord. You can intervene by the Holy Spirit to absolutely break their self will. You can do this, Lord, and it's the glory and honor of your church that's at stake, Lord. It is your people who are going to prosper or not based upon what happens here. So I'm asking you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I want you to look at his blood, Lord. Remember the promise he gave us that you're going to answer. Look upon the blood of Jesus. Look upon your church and do what I would ask for if I knew what needed to happen. Because your name's on the line, Lord, because they bear your name and it's your people and it's your kingdom and it's your church and it's your mission. I am just part of this, Lord. It's about you. Would you pray that way for your children? Would you pray that way for the other children in this church? Would you pray that way for your neighbors who don't know Jesus? Would you pray that way for the Christians who irritate you to death and you wish you had a voodoo doll to stab them with? Pray that God would bless them and work in their heart and change your heart and change them. See, if you channel that anxiety, the kingdom is already here, even if it's not yet here in its fullness. Being completely real and honest about the darkness of this world, but also expressing hope in the one who himself is the light and who has already broken in and carved out this tiny beachhead of light in the midst of the darkness. This leaves us living in a tension between the already and the not yet. The Bible uses the language of those, those moments right before sunrise. Uh, in Romans 13, you know, in the ancient world, you only worked when, it was, when there was sun out because you didn't have, people couldn't afford oil lamps and you didn't have electricity. And so you, you worked when the sun came up. And so that 40 minutes or so before the sun comes up, that was your time to get up, to clean yourself, to get ready for your day so that once the sun comes up, you can hit the ground running and get your work done. And so Paul can say in Romans 13, he says, understand the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. We're that beachhead. So that leaves us us with attention. And yet what it makes us is an Advent people. We as the church are in the same position as John the Baptist because John was declaring not Christ's first coming but ultimately his second coming when he makes everything right. Uh, You know, John's mission was to prepare the way for the Lord and that's our mission as well. Like John the baptizer, our job is to point to Jesus. It's always John's role to point not to himself, not to his great and wonderful successful ministry. He ends up dying head on a platter. But the point beyond himself to Jesus. Verse 76, 77. To give 
his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That was John's job. That's the church's job. Jesus is the one who saves. He's the one who forgives sin. He is the man of hope. And, and he does this because it's the kind of God he is. In verse 78, it's because of the tender mercy of our God. The tender mercy of a God who has seen every tear that has rolled down your cheek. Who knows your sorrows intimately. A God who sympathizes with your pain. A God who knows your every failure and your every loss. Everything you're ashamed of. Everything you regret. A God who in his tender mercy and compassion sees in us all our brokenness and misery. All the ways we've been trapped by the kingdom of darkness that surrounds us in every direction. And yet a God who still feels tender mercy toward you. Whose heart breaks over you. Who feels compassion toward you who sees the brokenness, sees the failures, and all the ways we've been bruised by the fall, and yet is nevertheless a God of tender mercy and compassion, who hears the cries of his people and has compassion. The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. Friends, in this darkness, as we can see the glimmer of the sun beginning to rise, we can see the rays coming out, the dark night horizon is starting to get a little pink. That sun that's rising is God himself. That rising sun is Jesus. Jesus, the rising sun, who will come to put an end to all of the strife and all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the cruelty, who will beat the swords into plowshares, who will bring God's shalom upon the earth, who will make all things flourish in him, in love and justice and peace and righteousness. A God who will liberate from its bondage to decay the earth itself. Death itself will be destroyed and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The sunrise is coming, friends. The darkness will not remain. It has been doomed because the beachhead has been taken and that real rescue, that victory day is coming. Jesus is going to bring it. And that's his promise. We got a photo of Casey Diaz. After about a year at New Folsom Prison, he heard guards come by his cell with an announcement. Protestant service. Any inmate wanting to go, stand your gate. He didn't care. He wasn't interested. He grew up Catholic. Wasn't interested in that either. Jesus was just a guy on a crucifix. One time, a lady came by and and, and, and walked by his cell. She had a thick southern draw. She, she said, hey, is there anyone in there? And the guard was like, oh, don't waste your time on Casey. He's a lost cause. And she was a Christian lady. She stopped and she said, well, don't you tell me that. And then she said, young man, do you want to come to the service with us? He says, no, thanks. Uh, well, how are you doing? I'm thriving. You know, a little cynical uh, in solitary confinement. She said, young man, God's going to do great things through you. I'm going to pray for you every time I come here. And she prayed for him. And uh, it was just about the only, you know, human interaction he had. It was about a year later, though, that Casey was lying down in his cell. He was daydreaming. He says, I turned toward the wall opposite my bed. And on that wall, something strange was happening. 
It's like a movie was playing on the wall, a movie that was about my life. I saw myself as a young child walking in an old neighborhood at 9th and Kenmore. I witnessed incidents from my early days with the gang, everything in picture-perfect detail. He didn't know if he was going crazy or what. He says, I saw a bearded man with long hair carrying a cross. And as he trudged along, a mob of angry people shouted at him. And when he arrived on the top of a knoll, rough-looking men nailed his hands and feet to the wooden beams and raised the cross so it stood between two other men on crosses. He says, what got to me most was this man then looked at me and he said, Darwin, I'm doing this for you. And I shuddered. Apart from the guards in my family, no one knew my real name. They only knew me as Casey. And then I heard the sound of breath leaving him. And at that moment, I knew this man had died. And that's when I hit the floor in the middle of the cell. I started weeping because I knew somehow that this was Almighty God. Even though I didn't understand what he had done for me, after hitting the floor, I knew I had to get on my knees and I started confessing my sins. God, I'm sorry for stabbing so many people. God, I'm sorry I robbed so many families. And with each new confession, I felt another weight come off my shoulders. And when I finished, I knew something major had happened. I asked to see a chaplain. He came to me and opened his Bible and he explained who Jesus was and he told me what I experienced and called it salvation. And he handed me a Bible and he told me to read it. And I spent five or six hours every day reading the Bible. Then I'd fall asleep. I'd wake up. I'd do some push-ups, some calisthenics. Then I'd pick it up where I'd left off. And I didn't understand half of what I was reading, but that didn't bother me because that was the start of my journey of faith. A light had shone in the darkness. He says, eventually I was released from solitary confinement and returned to the mainline population in prison where I was beaten up for becoming a Christian and for turning my back on my fellow gang members. But I was okay with that because I no longer was a shot caller. I had found a new calling. I belonged to Jesus, the light of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for your faithful love to us for your great mercy and grace, for your provision, and for your light in the midst of this darkness. We give you thanks. We consecrate to you now, Lord, the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, Lord, that you administer to us your grace through Christ our Lord. Amen.